Psalm 122. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There the thrones for judgment stand, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. This is the word of the Lord. God indeed. So as Paul mentioned, we are working through the Psalms of Ascent, Pilgrim Psalms. And if you were here last week, you know that these come in sets of three. The first one in the set being the one that sort of describes the hardship or the hassle that the community is dealing with. The second one being the one which talks about how the living God brings help within that hardship. And the third one in each of the series of three is the coming home to or the coming through worship into the presence of God. And so that's what we're looking at today. We're looking actually at the third in the three. I know we started at the first and we're going to the third. And actually next week, Rob will be preaching on the second one. So we're a bit out of order, but that's okay. I want you to realize that we are looking at one of the coming home or coming into the presence of the Lord Psalms, the third one in the trilogy that starts off the Psalms of Ascent in the Psalm stuff. And they're called Pilgrim Psalms, as Paul mentioned, because they were sung by Jewish pilgrims as they traveled up to Jerusalem for the great feasts. But I think it's important to realize that they should also be seen as Christian Psalms as well. Pilgrim Psalms for Christians, travelers working, walking along the long road of obedience towards the great wedding feast of the Lamb. Now that's a bigger picture than the psalmist who wrote this, who David might have known. But was it really a bigger picture than he would have known? Certainly it's a more complete picture, but I would actually argue it's not a bigger picture. The psalm shows us, in fact, that this is actually also an Old Testament perspective. The Jerusalem which has been described here is not the Jerusalem of David's time. They're describing a temple in this psalm which doesn't exist when David is writing. They're describing this great city with citadels and walls and, 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 and this really large metropolis with great architecture which didn't exist. This was just some hick country town when David was writing this psalm. The idea here of Jerusalem is far bigger than the bricks and mortar that David knew. This is a psalm that does not describe the reality of David's Jerusalem. It describes something much bigger, much more than just the Jerusalem that David knew. Now, it's clearly far more developed city than the tiny city of his day. They're talking about a city with a temple. They're talking about a city with big citadels and walls, a huge gate 
So the Old Testament regularly uses Jerusalem or Zion as a picture of God dwelling within reality. And that's what David is doing here. Yes, there's a sense in which he's looking to what Jerusalem may be, but he's also capturing something which is bigger for the people of the time. This is a movement towards a God indwelt within reality, a community that's coming together to worship, in this case in the temple, but coming together to worship as God indwelled people. Now, even Solomon acknowledged that the local Jerusalem was only a reflection of this, a foretaste of something more. We can see this in 1 Kings chapter 8. And I'm going to read you what Solomon said when they were dedicating the temple, when it actually had been built in Jerusalem. But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple that I have built. So you can see that even Solomon recognized that the temple in somehow is a foretaste of, a representation of, a symbol of, an expression of, but not the full realization of the God-indwelt reality that this psalm is describing. So when we understand it in context, in the Old Testament, they were talking about a bigger Jerusalem, the Jerusalem was there. They understood and used the word Jerusalem and the word Zion to represent much more than just a city, but an in, a God-indwelt community. We can, we can apply that in-situation context to what I would call a big-picture Bible context and look at how Jerusalem is described in in the New Testament. So the understanding here is not that we're reading into it, but we are fleshing it out. We're applying it more fully. So let me read to you from Hebrews 12, verses 22 to 24. But you have come, and this is the writer of Hebrews talking to those who are worshipping, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to the thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, the spirits, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and the sprinkled blood that speaks to a better word than the blood of Abel. So you can see that even in the New Testament, we've got this huge, big picture, indwelt community image. In this case, incorporating not just the saints, but also the angels. So the church, in a sense now, is the God dwelling with reality that this psalm is talking about. We're talking about us as Jerusalem. And we're going to look at this psalm through that light. We're going to look at verses 3 to 1 as the rejoicing city, a place of worship, verses, sorry, 1 and 2, verses 3 to 5 as the shalomful city, which is in a not yet context, it hasn't been fully realized, and then verses 6 to 9 of our psalm as the city to come home to, or the now city. What does it mean to live in the city now? And of course, as we're talking about Jerusalem, we're talking about Zion, we're talking about the church. So... Let's just jump in with the rejoicing city, a place to worship. Let me read verses 1 and 2 again. 
This is David speaking. I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. Now, as Paul pointed out, we use this as our call to worship today. Now look around. Look around the congregation right now. Look around at each other. As awkward or uncomfortable as that make, make you feel, this is Jerusalem. This is Zion. This is the God-indwelled community that the psalm is talking about. This is the reality of the kingdom of God as we experience it now. Now David's words are, I rejoice with those who said, let's go to the house of the Lord. Now what an odd community we are. You see, we don't choose ourselves, or at least we shouldn't choose ourselves. And if we are choosing ourselves, if we are somehow being clicky or, or looking on people in a way where they don't feel comfortable or not being welcoming, we're not really being that city. See, we don't choose ourselves. And we don't make up the cultural rules. And we shouldn't be making up those rules. We're an odd community. The only requirement is a heart of worship. Let us go up to the house of the Lord. Now, according to David, this shared purpose of rejoicing of worship brings rejoicing now it's important that we that we say here that christians are capable of chewing gum and rubbing their stomach at the same time and what do i mean by this that just because we are rejoicing doesn't mean that it removes the hardship it doesn't deny the difficult emotions but somehow in the middle of that it can also bring rejoicing we are immersed, or we're supposed to be immersed in each other's lives in worship, in a grounded hope, in an essential essence. And we're going to look at how this brings rejoicing, even in the midst of difficult hardships and hard emotions as we move into the next section, the shaloming of the city. But now I want you to look here at when we worship together, what do you experience? When you come into worship, when you come into community worship here, what do you experience? Now, maybe you might say the songs are not always the same in the bulletin as the ones we sing. Hmm. Maybe you might say the music is sometimes a little off-key. Hmm. Perhaps you might say that the slides skip the odd verse or two. Hmm. Maybe you might say that the microphone isn't always turned on just at the right time. Hmm. That's possible. Perhaps you might even argue that the preaching can be a little long-winded from time to time. All of that is possible, and all things worth working on, but can you enter into worship in community first? See, verse 1 here talks about rejoicing with those or worshipping with those who said to me, let's go up to the house of the Lord. Now, so we are here, just like David was, our feet are at the gates of Jerusalem and we're looking into the community and we've got to ask the question, are we here to enjoy fellowship in worship? Are we here to listen to the words of God in worship? Are we here, and it gets harder as we go along, to find our true identity as children, to find our place in the family of God here in worship? In fact, it's only in worship that we find God and ourselves in ways that we can't find in any other context but worship. Now, this is not meant to be a critical, an admonition 
of being a little critical about the things that are going wrong. Because the, user, the reason that people don't really enter into that deep type of fellowship, family committed worship is usually much deeper than that. It usually comes out of being afraid of being vulnerable. Perhaps you have a family or personal history and you feel habitually unsafe being vulnerable. And you know what? Breaking that habit is hard. It's hard and it takes prayer and it takes a lot of work and it takes experiencing people accepting you. It's not easy. Perhaps it's a fear of being judged or minimized or dismissed or devalued. And you know what? I don't want to pretend that we don't make those mistakes. As a pastor, I can tell you there have been times in the life of the church where people have called me up and said, you know what? I don't think I've been treated fairly. I don't think these are the way people, uh, things should be. And called me out directly on things and said things like, you know what? I think that I'm not being treated fairly because I'm a woman or I'm not being treated fairly because of this. And those are hard conversations. They're difficult conversations to hear. And yet they require us as family to repent, to reflect, to forgive, to live in that hard place, to work through those things. Perhaps you come with a history of spiritual trauma that the church has either inflicted upon you or failed to address. And what do I mean by spiritual trauma? You know, too often, especially in churches or in theology that preaches an over-realized truth that everything can be made right now and when things are not made right straight away, you start to feel guilty or ashamed or question your faith, you can end up, and, and quite honestly, even in churches where you come with a really strong and rigid uh, background of, of works righteousness, you can feel that faith is either, you're either in one of two states. You're in the state of being sinful or you're in the state of being right with God. And you flip-flop between those two. And you find that you can never get rid of the sin. And so you repeat, 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 rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. And that's traumatic. Rupture, repair, rupture, repair with God. Rupture, repair, rupture, repair. Until you start to dismiss the relationship, to minimize it, to become distant, to become anxious and fearful. And the truth is, as I was so glad, and it's, it's amazing how the worship team here put together the worship, and I guess they used the text, but uh, how Paul, when he was working through the confession today, made it so clear that our worth is not connected to our sinfulness, we are doted on and loved by God and invited in despite the fact that we're always messed up. Sin is way more than just a series of actions that we do periodically to rupture relationship. Sin is at the core of our heart. And yet God loves us deeply and we are incredibly valuable. And somehow we have to hold that I am loved, I am incredibly valuable, I am incredibly worth uh, to God with the fact that we are broken, we are messed up and we are sinful and that it's safe. And that's a really hard thing and unless you can hold that, your repentance is always going to be something which is produce, produces spiritual trauma. You're always going to be uh, rupture, repair, rupture, repair. No, guess what? The relationship is good. You need to move into that, recognize the depth of your depravity because that helps you recognize the extent of God's grace. That draws you in. That brings you closer. Not the fact that you're repairing the relationship. You're repenting 
to understand the depth of the grace that's restored the relationship. So what do you do if you're afraid to be vulnerable, if you have a fear of being judged or minimized, dismissed or devalued, if you have a history of spiritual trauma that the church has either helped inflict or failed to address? You pray. You pray for courage to lean in, to push through, to speak up, to forgive, to be forgiven, to worship with. You pray for the opportunity to hear from other people and you pray to make the offer to other people that David heard. Let's go to the household of the Lord. Be the God dwelling in reality. Be the God dwelling in community to be the church. Let us in freedom strive to be this God dwelling in reality of the church through prayer through our experience of God's real and expensive grace. So then, we move from the rejoicing city to the shalomful city. I'm calling this the not yet, but the coming. So why would you pray? Why would anyone pray to be part of a community which is so imperfect and flawed, to take that risk, to be vulnerable? Why would you pray for the courage to lean in, to push through, to speak up, to forgive, to be forgiven, to worship with? I'm telling you there are Three reasons. You can find them in verses 3, 4, and 5 in our psalm. So let me read them. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statutes given to Israel. There stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Three things. Maybe not intuitive. Maybe not jumping out of you as you hear them. But the first one is... Verse 3, because it's a, it's a beautiful city. It is functionally perfect and aesthetically pleasing. You're saying, what are you talking about? Closely compacted together. How does that possibly mean that? Well, I understand that I'm going to have a little bit of trouble selling you that being closely compacted together is positive. Given that, we all like our big blocks of land and our houses and our, and our sprawling suburbs but I want you to think what it would be like if you had to walk everywhere. That might change your mind if you didn't have a car. If the best, if you were the, the richest of you had a donkey to get around on. See, to the ancient reader, this describes high-end architectural magnificence. Your needs are met. Those you have close relationships, you can see whenever you want to see them. Help is quickly at hand. Imagine if you had to go shopping, but you had to walk to stop and shop, or you had to walk to market basket. Imagine if you wanted to take Kyle and Lissy a meal, and you had to walk first of all to stop and shop, then you had to carry all the groceries home, then you had to cook them, then you had to walk to their house, and then you had to walk back. You might be starting to see the beauty of a closely compacted city. And that's how the readers at that time saw this. Needs met, close to those you have good relationships with. Help is quickly at hand. People are present but not intrusive. It's tightly knit, but there's a sense of spaciousness. It's communal, but there's an opportunity for full expression. And this is how the relationships in the church should be. They should be. In God dwelling in community, they should be like that. Now, are they always like that? No. But we are invited in to foretaste it. 
we're invited in to foretaste it. So the first reason is because the city's beautiful. The second reason is because you belong. The tribes go up. This is a picture of completion. It's the whole family of God. Israel isn't present in its fullness without the 12 tribes. You, without you, the kingdom of God is not present. The church is not complete without all who belong. And you don't have to go to the New Testament to see this. Let's just quickly jump to Psalm 87, another psalm. It's another psalm talking about Zion or Jerusalem. He has found his city on the holy mountain. The Lord loves the gates of Zion, very similar to what we saw in Psalm 122. More than all the other dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are said of you, city of God. And this is where it gets really amazing. I will record Rahab, the outcast prostitute from Jericho, and Babylon, that great enemy of the Israelites, among those who acknowledge me. Philistia too, the Philistines, the ones that got all in David's face, and Tyre, along with Cush, that's Egypt, one of the uh, superpowers of the time that threatened Jerusalem. And we'll say this one, Rahab the outcast, Babylon and Philistine and Cush, those who are enemies and quarrel with Jerusalem, these ones were born in Zion. Indeed, of Zion it will be said, this one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord will write in the register of the peoples, this one was born in Zion. As they make music, they will sing all the founder. And you see that big picture of Jerusalem again, which has brought in not just the 12 tribes of Jerusalem, but has started to bring in all of the people, both those who are against Israel from time to time, uh, or those who were just genuinely outcasts. So, two takeaways from this, right? To today's enemy may well be tomorrow's sibling. So we don't know who's in that book. We just don't know who's in that book. And secondly, if the church makes you feel like an outcast or a source of conflict, take heart. Lean into the God-indwelling community. Foretaste it. Do the hard work of experiencing the belonging. Okay, so we got two things. Because it's a beautiful city. Because whether you realize it or not, you belong. And secondly, because it's a just city. You see here in verse 5, the throne of David mentioned, and it's a symbol of God's justice and fair rule. And now what I'm going to say here, we could spend a whole sermon on. So I'm going to say it twice, and I'm going to say it clearly, and I want you to take it in. With godly justice comes peace and prosperity. With peace and prosperity, there is rest in his rule that gives freedom to rejoice in his blessings. Let me say it again. The throne of David is a symbol of God's justice and fair rule. With godly justice comes peace and prosperity. With peace and prosperity, there is rest in his rule that gives freedom to rejoice in his blessings. Yeah. You have the beautiful city, you have the belonging to the city, and you have the justice of the city. All of these, in their fullness, are eternal, unshakable, everlasting. They're a foretaste, when we experience them, of an eternal reality. And we're invited into that. So what we're doing here is we're talking about 
a shalom for community. A functional, perfectly aesthetically pleasing, needs are met, always present, never intrusive, tight-knit, spacious, communal, self-expressive city. A city where you belong, a place where everyone who wants to be there is welcome. The outcast and the ex-enemy are embraced, which I hope you realize is all of us. We were all outcasts and enemies of Christ. It is a place of justice, of peace and prosperity. It's a place where we can experience freedom to rejoice in God's blessings. The fullness of the coming of the kingdom is experienced in the life of the church. And you are invited to lean in. So let's look at some practical ways to lean in, to experience this community here. One is fellowship hour. Join us for fellowship hour. Get to know each other a little better. One is prayer. Let's pray together in community. Come up afterwards with the deacons, or with myself or one of the other pastors or elders. Let's get to know each other through prayer a little bit better. Small groups. Join a small group. Now, they come with all the problems that you would expect of a not yet fully realized family, and that's okay. Lean in. Pray. Be family. Another way is service. There are plenty of opportunities to serve. Get to know people by serving. Get to find a sense of joy by looking for opportunities to use your gifts within the church. Okay, so we've got, first of all, the rejoicing city. We've looked at the shalomful city, which gives us a foretaste, but is not fully realized. Now we're looking at what I would call the city to come home to, the now city. See, this is in... So we're looking at this future shalom, which is not fully realized yet, but we can foretaste it, but something is going on in verses 6 to 9. So let's reread them. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be a peace within your walls and the security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say, peace be with you. For the sake of the house of our God, I will seek your prosperity. This is a prayer. And we've been given here a picture of what should be in the previous verses and what will be in the previous verses. But this prayer makes it clear that it's not yet here. We're living in the not yet. So this perfect shalom picture of the church is not fully realized yet. So how do we respond to the not yet? There's two pieces to this. One is the implicit acknowledgement. This prayer explicitly acknowledges that there is real pain in a broken world. So don't be one of the lying voices selling the complete fullness of the kingdom now that we saw in 120 last week. Don't be one of those people. Don't promise something. Don't, or don't be one of these people that pretends you have to be in a place where things aren't hard or difficult, or where there aren't uh, emotional struggles to be worked through. Make a place for lament and emotional distress. So there's an implicit acknowledgement of that in this. But there's some explicit instructions too. First of all, we see in verse 6, pray. Pray for the kingdom to keep breaking in. Pray for its security, verse 6, its peace, verse 7, its prosperity, verse 9. Why? For friends and family, for Jerusalem, 
for the God-indwelled community. We have family. And we have family with missing family members who aren't in this room with us, who have yet to be brought in, who have yet to be invited up to worship, who have yet to hear the words, let us go to the house of the Lord and to come with us. So praying changes things. And more than, but not less than, our orientation. Now I know that we are reformed. And we like to talk about prayer as being a heart-aligning activity. But I want to tell you now that prayer produces results, that it changes things, that it makes things happen. It's mysterious. It is certainly something that changes our relationship with God, but it's also something that God uses to bring about outcomes. So that means we should be praying specifically for kingdom shalom to come. I'm going to read you a way this was put by Eugene Peterson. Shalom is one of the richest words in the Bible. It gathers all aspects of wholeness that result from God's will being completed in us. It is the work of God that when complete, releases streams of living water in us and pulsates with eternal life. Every time Jesus healed, forgave, or called someone, we have a demonstration of shalom. That's from his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. So pray. Pray specifically for things, like we pray for Simone, Kyle's baby, in the hospital. We don't just pray, your will be done. We pray, save this baby, Lord. Bring this baby to health. Restore this baby. Now, does God always answer that? Not, not always the way we want him to answer that, but it's appropriate and right for us to pray for the kingdom of God to break in. It's what the psalm is telling us. Pray for those things. Pray for specific healing, for growth, for prosperity of, of the community, for security of the community and the world in places which aren't experiencing security. Pray for peace. Pray for God's blessing. Pray for God's kingdom to break in. And pray for the church Pray for the God-indwelling community. Pray for Zion. Pray for Jerusalem. And don't assess your faith by the outcome. You are being faithful simply by praying. God is calling you to pray. Don't make that mistake. And the second thing it says to do after pray is actually at the, in the last part of verse 9 where it talks about seek. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. Seek or align, what it's saying here. In other words, I will align my life to the prosperity of the coming kingdom. I will make my life about the coming of the kingdom of God. So note that this alignment does come, not by any small measure, by the fact that you've been engaged in the praying of this. You've been wrestling with the Holy Spirit about this. That you've been leaning in and demonstrating your submission and your dependence on God to bring these things about. That is doing this alignment that causes you to live a life which seeks the prosperity of the coming kingdom. So it is an outcome of the prayer. prayer. It is not an outcome of some sort of white-knuckled Christian morality that pushes through and says, I'm good enough, I can do it, I'm righteous in my own walk. 
It is a humble, submitted position that comes out of prayer for the kingdom of God. It, is, it expresses worship as an all-of-life activity. It's about, as we say at North Point all the time, seeing how our story, our little story, fits into his big story of redemptive history. How are we living that out? How are we making sense of that? How are we seeing that applied to the way we work and parent and, and leisure and spend our money and in, invest in relationships? See, we're called to be shalomers. We're called to be welcomers of outcasts and enemies. Let's seek out his prosperity for everyone. Let's seek out his security for everyone. Let's seek out his peace for everyone. Let's seek out his justice for everyone. We are already citizens of his kingdom. Pilgrims on our way home. And understand this. When we say we're pilgrims on the way home, that home is coming down and transforming this world, making it truly beautiful and aesthetic. We say to those we meet on our journey, let's go to the house of the Lord. And we give with our values and our lives in a way that allow those we meet to better foretaste what the house of the Lord looks like, what's coming. So, a city to come home to. Let's conclude. We all need a home where we belong, where we find support and refreshment, a place of permanent and secure fellowship and love where all our needs get met. Now, do you have a home like that as your pilgrim? Are you blessed with a foretaste of Zion, of Jerusalem, of the coming kingdom? Is this church or any other church part of that? And if the answer is yes, I encourage you to keep your wits about you. Give thanks for the foretaste, the blessing, but don't worship it. Don't give your loyalty to the blessing above and beyond your loyalty to the kingdom of God. And if your answer is no, keep your wits about you. Pray for this foretasting blessing. Pray for the kingdom of God to break in more fully into your life. But don't yearn for it above your yearning for the kingdom of God. As pilgrims, there is a great danger of letting our affections for this world distract us from our citizenship in the coming kingdom. We're on a journey. Long for the day you hear the sound of the trumpet and see the descending of the heavenly Jerusalem. We pray this all the time. Heavenly Father, your kingdom come. Hallowed be your name. Let's pray. Father, what a good way to start a prayer. Hallowed be your name. Proclaimed be your name. May every, every knee bow, every tongue confess that you are Lord. And Father, may your kingdom come. Sometimes we are so blessed. Our lives are so full. We have so much of a taste of your shalom that we forget that, as C.S. Lewis sometimes puts it, we're playing in a sewer rather than getting ready for the great vacation on the beach. Not that your coming kingdom is vacation. It's so much more than that. The shalom of completeness, of fullness. Father, we look forward and long for that and we pray, Father, that you give us hearts that bring that to bear as we can, as you enable us in the, in the present, not yet reality. And Father, we pray for hearts 
that look out and invite those that we come across to let us go to the house of the Lord, to invite them to stand with their feet in the great city of Jerusalem, in Zion, in the church, in the indwelling, in the God-indwelling community of your people. We ask these things in Jesus' name.